as the children are being dismissed, I should just say, before I started improving in the midst of sermons, <laughs> Carissa and I worked as uh, dinner theater actors in college in a show that was largely improvisational. So uh, come by it honestly there. <laughs> so let me say a word of prayer as we start. Father, first I just pray in Jesus' name that you would bless these children in their learning, in their discipleship. And Lord, I pray that you would open up our minds and our hearts to hear and receive your implanted word this morning. Change that which is in us that is contrary to sound truth and to your ways. And lead us by your Holy Spirit in the way everlasting. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. I want to begin this morning by sharing uh, an interaction I had with two of my nephews a few years ago. Now, I shared this a few years back, so it may sound familiar, but in my defense, I think Jesus uh, repeating stories was a sort of common practice for him too, right? So um, now, neither of these two particular nephews are Christians or, or part of a church-going family, but their mom, uh, who's my older sister, doesn't mind if I discuss uh, God with them on occasion. So as you can imagine, I look for opportunities. Uh, so one day we're sitting in a restaurant and they were about seven and nine years old at the time. And I asked, do you know that all scientists now basically agree that the universe had a beginning? And they said, yes. And they probably did know because they're pretty sharp. Uh, so I said, well, imagine for a moment a room with nothing in it, no bed, no, no lamp, no floor, not even sheer darkness, just nothing but nothing. Now, what if you checked back in a day? Uh, you, know, I, I, you know, if no one else opened the door or put something in it, what would be in that room when you checked back? Nothing, they replied. Well, what if you checked back in a year? Nothing. I said, okay, but, but if you checked back in 100,000 years, though, what would be in that room? Nothing, they answered again. So I said, well, if that's true, you know what's amazing? And they were like, what? And I was like, everything. <laughs> that the universe actually exists instead of nothing. So the universe, you know, the entire universe exists. Their eyes began to light up. And I said, it seems to me that something can't come from nothing. The universe can't start itself. It can't sort of reach back before time, before the time that it existed and cause itself to exist. It had to have an outside cause, a cause outside of itself. And they nodded back to this idea. This seemed to make sense to them. So I asked them, well, what do you think caused the universe to exist? What do you think was outside of the universe that caused it to exist? God, they said, in this matter-of-fact tone, without missing a beat, as if it were most, the most reasonable assertion in the world. And I said to them, well, I agree with you guys. 
G.K. Chesterton, the 20th century British writer and intellectual, summarized the point I made to my nephews in this way. He said, those, for those who really think, there's always something really unthinkable about the whole evolutionary cosmos as the pure materialists conceive it, because it's something coming out of nothing. An ever-increasing flood of water pouring out of an empty jug. Chesterton continues, it is absurd for the evolutionist to complain that it's unthinkable for an admittedly unthinkable God to make everything out of nothing and then pretend that it's somehow more thinkable that nothing should turn itself into everything. Now, what's, what's the point? In our passage today from John 6, Jesus does several things that our mortal minds are likely to categorize as unthinkable. He feeds 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. He walks upon the water. And if I'm reading verse 21 correctly, he seems to teleport the disciples and their boats to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, all of this can seem pretty far-fetched and gratuitous or perhaps come across as an impossible breach of the laws of physics until we remember who Jesus actually is, who he claimed to be. Most people in the world believe in a creator. Did you realize that? Even today, that's true, even in 2023 with irreligion on the rise. But this affirmation of an original creator, while it may be thought of as a rational belief, after all, is it not more unthinkable that, the world, that, uh, that nothing should turn itself into everything? But, but this rather basic belief, I'm not sure that the majority of mankind properly reckons with the kind of power and miracle, the kind of raw transcendent power that we're affirming and just simply affirming that the universe came from a creator. They might essentially affirm the broad outline of Genesis 1, but remain skeptical about the lesser kinds of miracles in the Bible. But to this, we might, as Bible-believing Christians, ask, well, think with me here. Could not the same eternal word that said, let there be galaxies and stars, not easily say, more easily, let there be more bread? And could not Jesus Christ, if indeed he is the one who continue, continuously sustains and upholds the universe by the word of his power, Hebrews 1.3, could he not also hold the raging waters firm under his own divine footprint? Of course, we'll have to admit that it all depends on the identity of Jesus, which is actually the central question in our text today. Would you please grab a Bible and turn there with me to John 6. It's on page 891 of your pew Bible. We'll begin with the feeding of the 5,000, uh, which is actually one of the only miracle stories found in all four Gospels. Okay? So turn to John 6, and looking down with me at verse 5, it says, When Jesus looked up and saw a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, where can we buy bread for all these people to eat? But Jesus was saying this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. 
So here we see an all-knowing Jesus testing the faith of his disciple Philip. Jesus himself knew what he was going to do. He was going to provide just as the Lord provided manna for Israel to eat in the wilderness. But he wanted to see what this disciple thought. We see a pattern of this kind of testing in the first few chapters of the Gospel of John. Jesus, who is himself both human and divine, likes to use physical reality, doesn't he? To point to spiritual truth. It's like when he, when he asked the Samaritan woman for a drink and then turned it into a conversation about living water. Or when he said to Nicodemus that he must be born again and he used this to explain regeneration by the power of the Holy Spirit. In each instance, the confused people take Jesus' words literally rather than spiritually. Here, the response is no different. Philip answered him in verse 7, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to have just a little. But whereas Philip and Andrew are portrayed as somewhat spiritually oblivious, we're given a lesson in faith from none other than a child, or at least from his lunch. And you know the rest. The boy's five barley loaves and two fishes are used to feed 5,000 men. Now, Matthew 14, 21 uh, notes that this didn't include women and children. So it's possible that the full number was over 10,000. Now, I love the dramatic depiction of this event in the most recent episode of the streaming series, The Chosen. It's so powerful. Please watch it. But as far as the actual text, we're actually given very few details concerning like the mechanics of this miracle, right? How it worked or what it looked like. But I wonder, what are the spiritual lessons we're supposed to draw from this little boy and his lunch, which we do hear about? So I don't know about you, but when it comes to serving God or trying to make a, you know, a, a loving impact in the world, I often feel it's like a little boy standing with my five loaves and two fishes. Or maybe even like two loaves and one fish in front of an army of hungry people. My own efforts and time and gifts or the money I have to contribute seems like such a, a meager offering in light of the colossal problems of this world. Global poverty world evangelization, family breakdown, caring for orphans, speaking truth in the public square. And in light of the very finitude of our offering, we're tempted to just freeze up or despair. What can I really do? What contribution can I really make in light of all this darkness? But there's good news for us in this passage, beloved. Because it teaches us to bring the little that we do have to Jesus. To let him elevate it and multiply it. To allow him to bring the missing ingredients and do what only he can do. As Mother Teresa famously admonished, if you can't feed a hundred people, then feed just one. Amen and amen. And we have to trust Jesus to multiply these small acts of compassion. Lord, when they see us, may they see your mercy. Let your mercy 
flow through us. That's how God's people participate with him to change the world. Not by trying to be the Messiah all by ourselves. Good luck with that. Or by pretending to be the vine. But by simply abiding in Christ, the true Messiah, the true vine, and just being a fruitful branch. Because what was true back then, guys, is still true now. Jesus always brings the missing ingredient, always brings his divine resources to our human efforts and offerings. In fact, the early church fathers, interestingly, universally understood the feeding of the 5,000 to be pointing ahead to the everyday miracle of the Eucharist, to the regular multiplication of Jesus' body and blood, his presence among the Christian faithful. And they thought about it like this for very sound biblical reasons. For example, did you know that the story of Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper in Matthew, Mark, and Luke all include the same four Greek verbs? Now, they're translated as took, blessed, broke, gave. Matthew 26, 26 says, Now they were eating, and Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said to them, Take, eat, this is my body. See also Mark 14, 22 and Luke 22, 19. And meanwhile, the church fathers noted that these same four verbs occur in each account of the multiplication of the loaves in the Synoptic Gospels. For example, Matthew 14, 19 says, Then he ordered the crowds to sit down in the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And so we see the same in Mark 6.41 and Luke 9.16. Took, blessed, broke, gave. The church fathers read the Bible closer than we did, by the way. Now, this linguistic allusion to the Lord's Supper is slightly less clear, I would say, in verse 11 of John's account. But on the other hand, the theme of the Eucharist is developed to an even greater degree in this account. Not only is the miracle set in the context of the Passover, we see in verse 4, which is just like the Lord's Supper, right? But throughout the rest of John 6, Jesus gives his great discourse on the bread of life. And lest we miss the connection to Holy Communion, Jesus takes it a step further in verses 54 and 55, adding, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. My flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Now, why would Jesus speak of drinking blood after the feeding of the 5,000 when there's no reference to wine in this story? Because he's pointing forward to the Lord's Supper. In fact, the Gospel of John, which assumes we already have access to the Synoptic Gospels, doesn't even include the story about the institution of the Lord's Supper in the upper room during Passion Week. He chooses instead to focus on uh, Jesus washing his disciples' feet, which is a story that was not yet told. And this isn't because the beloved disciple doesn't care about the Eucharist or the institution of the Lord's Supper. No, it's because he, he already addressed that at length back in John chapter 6. Did you realize, beloved, that when you come forward each week, each week to receive the sacrament of Holy Communion, you are, in a sense, 
getting to participate in the feeding of the 5,000 with Christ as himself as the chief celebrant. Jesus is the breaker and distributor in verse 11. And as one of our hymns puts it, offered was he for greatest and for least, himself the victim and himself the priest. Indeed, as Jesus instructs in verse 12, we even gather up the pieces that are left over every Sunday so that nothing is wasted. All right, phew, you guys with me? Some of you guys are wanting to abandon, not because of crying children. <laughs> Some of you guys are wanting to abandon, just like the crowds wanted to abandon Jesus. This was a hard teaching. There's so much good stuff packed in the feeding of the 5,000. But before we move on, we need to say a bit more about some of these juicy Old Testament allusions. And there's more than I have opportunity to talk about. But we've already mentioned the reference to the Passover festival, which was also a kind of proto-Eucharist. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 1 Corinthians 5.7 But we also get a subtle reference to the 12 tribes of Israel through the 12 baskets of the leftover pieces in verse 13. This is also the first possible allusion in John's gospel to the 12 apostles as a unit. They're mentioned again several times in the final verses of this chapter as the only ones who do not abandon Jesus after his whole eat my flesh, drink my blood speech. So more on that in the coming weeks. But as far as Old Testament allusions, this miracle, of course, bears striking resemblance to the story of the Old Testament prophet Elisha feeding the sons of his fellow prophets in 2 Kings 4, verses 42 through 44. So in verse 42, as we just heard read, a man comes to Elijah, quote, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 24 loaves of barley. Sound familiar? And fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, give it to the men that they may eat. But the servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give it to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left. Again, sound familiar? According to the word of the Lord. Amen. And what the word of the Lord did for a hundred, the word made flesh did for 10,000. But perhaps the most important of the Old Testament allusions is to Jesus as the new Moses. As in the story of Moses, Jesus gives the hungry Israelites bread from heaven in the wilderness. In fact, they continue to follow Jesus sort of superficially after this event, as we read on, looking only for another free snack. And they give him this sort of not-so-subtle hint in verses 30 and 31. Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? As if they didn't already get a sign, right? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And hint, hint. Nudge, nudge. This imagery is not lost even on the spiritually shallow crowds who declare in verse 14, this really is the prophet who is coming into the world. The prophet is a reference to the prophet like Moses from Deuteronomy 18, which we preached on just a few months back. All this is true. 
Jesus is the prophet. He is the new and greater Moses. Indeed, his works are mightier than Elisha's. He is the bread from heaven and the true Passover lamb. But there's something more. Something that gets at the heart of why Jesus was testing his disciple, Philip. Something that these faithful monotheists could scarcely piece together. This, this couldn't be what he's saying here, could it? Something that would take the next miracle, Jesus walking on water, which, which also occurs immediately after the multiplication of the loaves in Matthew and Mark, it would take this miracle in order to fully elucidate. We pick up the story in verse 19 after Jesus goes off on his own. The disciples get into the boat to cross the Sea of Galilee, and it says in verse 19 that they had rowed about three or four miles. They saw Jesus walking on the sea toward their boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were headed. Now, interestingly, at this point in Matthew's account, it says that those who were in the boat worshipped him. They worshipped him. His monotheistic disciples who know and repeat multiple times every day, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. They worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Matthew 14, how can this be? Well, we get a massive hint as to why they worshipped him. Here in John 20, when Jesus speaks to them from out on the water, he says, it is I, or in Greek, ego eimi, I am, which of course is a reference to the name that the, that the Lord gave to Moses from the burning bush saying, I am who I am. Some of the examples that follow are obvious, such as when Jesus says, in 858, before Abraham was, I am. But here is arguably the first reference that inaugurates the great I am statements. There's nearly 20 of them in the Gospel of John, which is a statement about Jesus's true divine identity. And we get it here from Jesus walking on the water and saying, I am. While many of his miracles find some sort of like lesser reference in the prophets of old, like we saw in the multiplication of the loaves, or they usually have some sort of practical point, this seems a little bit like unabashed, a little gratuitous. What is Jesus doing? He doesn't just do like magic tricks. What's going on here? Speaking poetically about the Lord Almighty, Job 9, 8 asks, Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. In other words, who can do such things except the true master over the natural world? Indeed, to make the reference to Job 9 even clearer, Mark 6.48 testifies that Jesus, quote, meant to pass by them, which is actually a reference to Job 9, 10, and 11, 
Who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number? Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. I mean, Jesus, do you have to be so awesome? Do you think that these monotheistic, these first century fishermen, these, these early disciples are just uber geniuses that are piecing all this together? No, I tell you, there is an uber genius behind this, but it's actually Jesus himself. It's actually the providence of God. Mark 6.51 adds a further detail connecting this story back to the feeding of the 5,000. It says, and he got in the boat with them and the winds ceased and they were utterly astounded. It says, for they did not understand about the loaves, for their hearts were hardened. Now, if you're like me, you've probably asked the question, what do they not understand about the loaves? That Jesus is God. That Jesus was not actually playing the role of Moses in the wilderness who merely told the people what God was going to do for them in providing the manna, Jesus is playing the role of Yahweh. So where did all the extra bread come from for all these people? The answer is actually quite simple. He created it. And this brings us back to the original point, that the plausibility of these miracle stories rests upon the identity of Jesus how was the water held firm under his feet? Because Jesus holds the universe together by his powerful word. This is not some superficial perversion of the laws of physics as the unbelievers would claim. Indeed, we must understand that, quote, the laws of nature are at every moment held together by the omnipotent will of Almighty God. And here I want you to lean in for just a few more minutes as I share some more biblical theology on the relationship between God and creation. Because this relationship is not like the relationship between like a chicken and an egg, where once the egg is laid, it sort of gains its own independent existence, sort of a self-governing integrity, and the chicken can only relate to it as sort of an outsider to its being. Rather, that which was created ex nihilo, out of nothing, by the word of power, remains continuously upheld by that same word of power. The creator God who originally said, let there be light and caused light to be from nothing, has continued to command and will the existence of light at every subsequent moment. Saying to light, be to the birds, be, to the molecules of every drop of water and every loaf of bread, be. And it remains. The cup of God's love continuously spills over with creating and sustaining power, speaking an affirmation over the existence of every person seated in this room at every infinitesimal moment, be, continue to be. The universe is not, as the deist suggests, simply a giant clock that God sort of created and wound up at the beginning of time and then left to its own mechanized independence. Rather, as the great theologian Thomas Aquinas taught, the creator is related, uh, the creature is related to the creator in a way that's much more intimate and continuously dependent. God's being and power are the very grounds of our own existence, right? 
as the Apostle Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being. The relationship to the creator and creation is more like the relationship between the sun and warmth. It's not simply the case that the sun is the original source of terrestrial warmth, although, of course, that's true. But what's more, the sun stands as, as the continuous source and the grounds of the very existence of warmth. Now, in saying this, I'm not trying to imply some kind of pantheism. Stick with me. Where we fail to differentiate between God and the universe, thinking that they're one and the same substance. Rather, I'm trying to emphasize that all creaturely existence, whether bread or man or warmth or water, is altogether upheld by and grounded in the power and the very being of God. Is that the way that you think about God? We need a bigger view of him. God is going to burst, a, burst outside of our boxes. Jesus is going to make sure of that. So I come back now to the beginning, to my interaction with my nephews in the room, with nothing in it, not even darkness, nothing but nothing. And here's the thing, and this should be obvious, my friends. It should be obvious. Without the eternally existent being of God, that nothing remains nothing forever. No matter or stars, no water or bread, no people created in the image of God with basic human rights, no miracles or redemption, no morals or meaning, absolutely nothing but nothing. But if God exists, everything is possible. Amen.